let's, let's dive in here. Um, we're starting a brand new series today, and it's called Real Relationships. And we're going we're gonna to launch the fall talking about what God wants for us in relationships with each other. And uh, so let's pray, and then um, we'll dive right in. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that the entrance of it gives us light, that revelation happens in us when we open the scriptures. And so, Lord, would you, would you lead us? Would you guide us now? Would you help us to open our hearts towards you and everything that you're doing? In Jesus' name, amen. If you feel alone sometimes, you are not alone in being lonely. There's a study that just came out from Cigna Health Insurance Group, and they did this massive study with 20,000 Americans age 18 years old and older. And, and they did this incredible study that they conducted uh, with Ipsos, and it was an amazing picture of what's going on in American culture today. In fact, uh, Vivek Murthy, the 19th, 19th Surgeon General of the United States, wrote in a Harvard Business Review article that loneliness is a growing health epidemic. Rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s and that today over 40% of adults in America report feeling lonely and re research suggests that the real number may well be higher. Here's what came out of the Cigna study, just a few little percentages. 46% felt alone, either sometimes or always. 47% felt left out, just left out of things. 43% felt that their relationships are not meaningful, not meaningful at all. 43% felt isolated from others. 27% said they rarely or never felt as though there are people who really understand them. Now, I don't know about you, but these are like shocking numbers that this amount of people, almost half the people that they surveyed of this 20,000 are, are saying things like this. As they went on in the study, 53, only 53% have meaningful in-person social interactions, such as having an extended conversation with a friend or spending quality time with a family on a daily basis. They also said the loneliest generation was Generation Z, those 18 to 22 years old. Now, I think... <clears throat> the truth is we're more connected. We have more options for connection than ever, but we're lonelier than ever. What is this? There is a human condition, and we, we can't seem to reverse a growing epidemic in American culture. And so we have to drill down on this as God's people. Indeed, we are in need of greater answers in our current culture than, than we're even giving to our society as God's people. And I, 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 I heard um, Pastor Rob, he, he, he saw this, um, this post this week, and he said, look, the, the real miracle of Jesus, nobody concentrates on the real miracle of Jesus, which was getting 12 friends to stay friends in their 30s. 
there is a real problem that we all face in the way that we live this life out in our culture and in our society. I was reading a Forbes magazine article about this by a, a man named Bruce Y. Lee, and he, he said this. He said, besides feeling bad, loneliness may be bad in many ways. A number of studies have shown that feeling lonely is associated with increased risks of health problems such as coronary artery disease, declines in motor functions and frailty, as well as earlier death. Of course, this can be, he says, a chicken and the egg problem, meaning that it is not completely clear that what's the cause and what's the effect rather than it being caused by eating chicken and eggs. But he said, are, are health problems leading to loneliness or vice versa? And, and what are other factors that may be mediating these effects? For example, could bad work environments be leading to both health-threatening stress and lack of social interactions? He goes on, he says, of course, you can blame individuals for the loneliness epidemic, thus making them feel more alone. And tell people to make more friends or talk to more people and drink more so that you can become the entertaining spectacle at the holiday party. <laughs> but the fact that the loneliness has been steadily increasing since the 80s, which incidentally parallels with the rise of other major public health problems such as obesity, it suggests that the loneliness epidemic may be a systems problem rather than just an individual problem. He goes on, it's time to look more closely at what aspects of our communities, our schools, and our workplaces, and our society may be contributing to loneliness. Systems problems require systems approaches and solutions. I want you to think about that. So he's writing a Forbes article, and he's thinking about it, and he's wrestling with the ideas of what's going on in our culture. What's going on in your place of work? How could, how could our workplaces do better? How could our schools do better? How could, how could our marketplace, you know, and, 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 and businesses downtown, how could, how could we do this better? I think it's a good question. I think Jesus gave us the answer. I don't think it's a system. I think it's a relationship that does something so profound in your life that it changes the way you interact with people. So, in, and, and as I read this, and I read a bunch of stuff this week, I was thinking about how God put us here, how he put us here in this city, how we are his people, and they're, they're, his people are all over the planet, and shouldn't they be part of the solution to this problem? that we're experiencing, because I think the problem has more spiritual implications than we want to admit. And make no mistake, this is our calling. God has always been on, on the people. God's calling is on people who are people of peace, who are settled with themselves. And being settled with who they are. And, here, and here's the issue. Good relationships don't begin with others or blaming somebody else or saying this is this is a problem or oh, we my boss needs to fix this or my pastor needs to do that 
or my mayor needs to do this in our city. Listen, there are many things we can do to improve relationships. But you have to start with something else. It's not they who must do better, it's we. It's, it's not you who I need to begin with, it's me. It's me. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 22 when he's asked the profound question in verse 36. He says, the, the person who asked him the question says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor. Now pause right there because that's where most people end. It's like, Love God and love your neighbor. There it is. There it is. Look, it's actually incomplete if you do that. Because Jesus added a little qualifier right on the end. He actually does it in each time he says this. Each time it's recorded in the Gospels, he adds this little qualifier. He offers a description, a measurement system of how you and I are supposed to love our neighbors. What is it? Read it again. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? As yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commands. The entire Bible, he says, can be summed up in these two ideas. Everything. It appears that every part of God's story, every part of, of humanity can fulfill his desires for them if they'll do these two things. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love him and love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus is kind of pointing to something here with this little dangling qualifier. Because consider this. If, if you invite me over to your house, right, and, um, and Amy and I, we come to your house and, and, and you're going to clean it really good because the pastor's coming over. And we're going we're gonna to have dinner. You're going to cook something. You're going to maybe ask us, um, are, what are your kids like or dislike? And can we, can we make sure everything's good for you? And you're going to take care of me. And, and you're going you're gonna to take care of our family. And, and it's going to be wonderful. All that is so right. But Jesus is nudging us to this question, not about how you might take care of me, but how you might take care of you. Would I want you to take care of me the way you take care of you? That's really the question. Would I want you to take care of me the way you take care of you? Not the way you would take care of me, because I know you'll bring out the nice dishes. But the way it is on our house, we bring out the nice dishes for guests. <laughs> we eat on paper plates. <laughs> I'm sorry, we fill the landfill. Sorry. <laughs> we do recycle, however. So, but there's a thing that we have to see that Jesus is pointing to. And today I want to challenge you to think about yourself deeply. I don't want you to think about yourself in that selfie kind of way. 
right? Like, I don't want you to, I don't want you to, you know what I mean? I, 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 it's sort of an obsessive, like, that selfie thing is kind of all around our culture, this airbrushed, perfectly filtered version of you. That's not what I'm talking about. I know it sounds weird to say it this way, but every one of us has a relationship with ourselves, with an internal monologue and a self-talk and a, an identity that determines how we relate and interact with others. Because this is really the heart of the matter where Jesus is going. And it makes sense that Jesus would do this because he was interested in people's hearts. He was interested in the heart of the matter. As I was uh, looking at a little research, Anna Hart, who is a fashion and travel and lifestyle journalist, she, she described it this way. What on earth were you thinking? She says, I am looking at my husband's Instagram feed where a picture of me shivering in a wetsuit stares back at me. Hair flat against my face, makeup free, bum blocking the beach. I was thinking you looked really happy, he says, <laughs> wounded. Now, if I could just pause here, rookie mistake by this husband. <laughs> rookie mistake, man, come on. I have been married long enough to know that this woman that I'm married to, who I believe is so beautiful, needs a thorough approval process for every picture that I take of her and put anywhere in public. It, I don't understand it. It's not really like, but she, but I, but I defer to her. <laughs> Anna Hart goes on. She says, as I try to explain why I'm reacting like a celebrity who's just spotted a paparazzo up a tree, how this photo amounts to career suicide, even defamation, I realize that it is, of course, the saner voice that he offers. But these days, mine is the normal voice. Most women I know would react the same way. In the age of social media and selfies, it's become natural to meticulously police image of, images of ourselves. I, I've never thought of myself as high maintenance. I go makeup-free on holidays, can get ready for a night out on, in under 15 minutes, and never expect to look better than passable. Yet, I know my good angles. I've perfected a selfie smile, and I have preferred Instagram filters. And I'm not the only one. Vanity has exploded on an epic scale. So please don't misunderstand as I begin to ask you some questions. I'm not talking about this self-absorbed predisposition that we have in our culture with ourselves. I'm not talking about selfishness. I'm talking about a, a real heart check about who you are and what God might want from you. I want you to evaluate your capacity for healthy relationships today, not the shallow, superficial facsimile of social media friends or likes or tweets or expressive emojis. I'm going to ask you three simple questions to help you evaluate you. Here's the first one. Do you think you're high maintenance? Do you think you're high maintenance? <laughs> I can hear you guys thinking, no, but the person sitting next to me is. <laughs> but 
think about it. Think about it. You are high maintenance. Think about it. Oxygen, water, food, the right healthy food, sleep, clothing, emotional support, intellectual stimulation, personal idiosyncrasies, likes, dislikes. You are needy. I am needy. My, uh, my wife, Amy, will tell you, everywhere I go to a restaurant, I am the high-maintenance one at the dinner table. <laughs> I cannot order without something different from the menu. <laughs> if it has sauce on it, I need the sauce on the side. I'm a very big on-the-side person. But here's the deal. Having needs does not make you dangerous damaged or dreaming it makes you human let's let that sink in a little bit having needs does not make you dangerous or damaged or draining it makes you human you and I need to own it we are designed with needs and the truth is not having any needs is dangerous Thinking you can handle it all. That's where the danger is. I looked up the definition of high maintenance. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it's not just a TV show about needy pot-smoking people in Brooklyn. It is, it is, a, it is a, a, a definition that seems pretty reasonable to me. High maintenance means needing a lot of work to keep in good condition. Needing a lot of work to keep in good condition. I think that's me. <laughs> I think that's you. We need a lot of work. I'll never forget the first time it happened to me as I was growing older. I was playing football with a bunch of young guys. Hurt myself. I think I was 37 years old. It was terrible. Like, it lasted for five days. I was just sore all over. Called my doctor. He said, hey, something's wrong with me. Something's wrong. I, I, I need help. He's, he, I described the symptoms to him. He said, okay, I have good news and bad news. Good news is you're going to be fine. You know, you're just getting old. That's the bad news. I said, no way. This cannot be, this cannot be what it feels like to get old. He said, no, it gets worse. <laughs> There's a need to do things that keep us in good working condition. Psalm 139, 13 through 14, it's in your message notes. It says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. <laughs> Look at that. Thank you for, thank God. God, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. I've heard that said many times in a counseling office. As the husband is sitting there. <laughs> it's too complex. I can't figure it out. God made you this way. He made me this way. And why? Most of us know have, we have no earthly idea on how brilliantly you and I are made. And how important that is to our makeup. How important it is that you understand that before you can love others, you have to own the fact that you have needs. And 
Here's the amazing good news. God loves to meet your needs. Let me say it again. Say it again. God loves to meet your needs. Now, for some of you who grew up in Sunday school, you're like, what? wait a minute. He doesn't love to meet my needs. He puts up with my needs. Because I should be a lot better than I am right now. See, that's, that's stinking thinking right there. Look at what Acts 17, verse 24 says. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs. Wow, think about that. Human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. Isn't that cool? The Lord of heaven and earth has set everything up so that he can meet your needs, my needs. He is near every one of us and ready to meet our needs. He takes pleasure in it. So God's perfect, right? Right? He, he has no needs. I wonder what that allows him to do if he has no needs that means he has have you ever <laughs> have you ever felt like you spend all your time meeting other people's needs i know my wife does i know moms do i know sometimes guys do i know sometimes you just feel like you're the person everybody comes to and you're just spending all this time meeting other people's needs god doesn't have that he has no needs he has no needs. What about me time? That's a big thing, right? What about me? God doesn't need me time. He is. Always was. Always will be. He doesn't have any needs. So he can meet yours. So he can meet your needs. He wants to meet your needs. Jesus describes this teaching to the disciples when he teaches them how to pray. Check this out. Matthew 6, 7 through 9 says, When you pray, don't babble on and on like the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating the words over and over again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Well, then the question is, well, why is Jesus teaching us to, to pray this way? Because he wants something else. He's, he's not hung up on your needs. He wants relationship with you. He already has. He knows what your needs are. Your father knows what you need. It's not just theological. It's entirely relational. He created you to have those needs. He's obsessively watching you. He knows what's going on in your life. He sees it unfolding. He's meeting your needs. He's modeling for us that love is actually seeing a need and meeting it. He loves you. And when you admit your needs, God does not get frustrated. He gets fatherly. He does not get frustrated. He gets fatherly. I want to give my kids everything I got, and I didn't know how much I was wired this way until I started, until, until I started, Sorry. Until I started taking them to college. And I would take them to college, and it was like they needed all this stuff, and I just wanted to buy them more stuff because I, I was about to leave them. I was about to leave my little girl. <laughs> I, I, I took her, this is last August, this, a month ago, and I took her, and I dropped her off at college, and it's like my whole parental instinct is to do everything that she needs, but it's time for her to be on her own, but I'm not ready. So I buy her no more stuff. 
I buy her more stuff. I want to see, I want to make sure she has everything she needs. Listen, God loves doing it. He doesn't, he doesn't get frustrated. He gets fatherly. That's why the apostle Paul wrote Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Don't worry about anything. And instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. And he, his peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. The more you realize you are needy. Listen, the more you realize you are needy by design, the more you will understand that God wants to be the one to meet your needs. By design. And if you think about it, if you'll, just, if you'll just pause for a minute, you'll think about it. It's not only that he meets your needs by design and he loves to do that, but it's the, the, the more you understand this, the more you will become a good steward. Everybody say good steward, good steward. of your needs. Did you know that you have to be a good steward of your needs? Did you know have to, you, you have to know what your needs really are, that you have to understand how it works, and your life needs this upkeep and this investment, and your own soul needs it? You know, how silly would it be if you have a truck, and that truck needs a lot of gas? Uh, uh, my, my truck need, takes a lot more gas than my smaller little cars, but, but how silly would it be if you want to go anywhere, you got to put gas in the truck, and we just think to ourselves, you say to your truck, oh, this truck, you're so stupid. What a stupid truck. Truck's so needy. I got to fill you up all the time, and I'm sick and tired of you needing gas. Whiny neediness. You're too much work. You cost too much to fill up. I hate you, truck. It seems, it's silly, right? It's, it's silly. We fill up our car and our trucks to get to work. But then why do we continue to show up for work with a soul on empty? Why do we return home from work with a soul on empty? We, gotta, we don't get it, do we? Just go ahead and say it. Just go ahead and say it. I am seriously high maintenance. Go ahead. Right, say it to your neighbor, you're seriously high maintenance. Go ahead and say it to him. <laughs> it's fun, right? It's fun. That's, just say it to him. Here, here we go. Now follow me. Follow me. A couple more questions. We all, think, we all think it's whiny to admit our needs. It's not. It's our neediness. Go with me. It's our neediness that is the secret to understanding the gospel and God's love for you. Because he knows your needs. And he has the solutions. It's our neediness that is the foundation of good relationships because it provides a self-awareness. I have needs. That means I know other people have needs. And I should be part of helping meet those needs. Do you see the self-awareness? If you don't think you have needs, if you deny your needs, if you somehow um, just keep going and going without refilling the tank, you're going to be in trouble. Second question I have for you today is, do you have a relational rhythm? Because God wants you to be in a position with your needs met than to help the needs of others. And so do you have a relational rhythm? Do you know your creative cadence, your, the, 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 the rhythm by which you are designed to live? Are you in touch with it? So many of us tend to live our lives by the tyranny of the urgent. Whatever is most urgent, that's just what we go to. 
We just got it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a famous procrastinator. Ask anybody on my team. I do my best work under pressure. That's why I procrastinate all the time. It's my best work. But it's not always healthy for me. And it's certainly not always healthy for others. I want you to think about how many calendars you have. <laughs> I have so many calendars. My kids have a calendar. My family has a calendar. My wife has a calendar. I have this calendar. My, I have a workplace calendar. I have a, and I've discovered that this is really a stupid thing that we've done. We, instead of, instead of just filling up one calendar like we used to, we make a whole bunch of calendars and put stuff on it, and then we feel like we don't have as much to do. That's really dumb. And I understand the need for separate calendars. I understand the kids have sports events and all that kind of stuff. But if you, if you keep using multiple calendars, you never see how packed your life is. And then you just feel like you're running, running, running. All of us need relational rhythm in our lives. The way we're wired helps determine what that rhythm should look like. But each person has their own rhythm that God designed. And here's the problem. So many in our culture, so many of us, and I've been guilty of this, is our life revolves around our calendar instead of our creator. Our life revolves around our calendar instead of our creator. And you, th you think to yourself, no, isn't it godly to, like, isn't it godly to fill up the calendar? No! Depends on what you're putting on the calendar. Depends on if you have a relational rhythm that you understand the calendars you and I create are so often done without the input of our primary relationship. Jesus said there's a different priority we should live by in order to create real relational rhythms in our lives. Matthew 6, he says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So our first relationship of course, must be with God. That's established. Our relationship, but, but what is not, what is kind of a, a mystery sometimes is our relationship with God determines how we prioritize and value others. It our relationship with God determines how we prioritize and value other people. It determines our capacity. This seek first idea. We just had a whole week devoted to seeking God first because we believe that God will do what he said in that verse, which is add. Everybody say add. He will add things to our lives. I think the problem is we're holding on to so much stuff that seeking him first is relinquishing control of all that stuff, and he then can add what he wants. He wants to add all this great stuff to your life, but he can't because it's so full of your stuff. You've prioritized other things above him. He wants to add people to your life, but he can't because you're chasing all this other stuff. Seek first the kingdom, then God will add. He will add all these things that you need. Requires a relational rhythm. Our second relationships, not our first one with God, but our second ones are actually directed by our first one, and we must include these other relationships in our relational rhythm. The great commandment has two parts to it. It's God, love God, relationship with God, and relationship with others. So do you have a relationship with God that is rhythmic? Do you have a rhythm of relationship with him and a rhythm of relationship with others? 
Or do you go for long periods of time with no contact to either one? Long periods of, God, it's been a while, and so I just want to say hi. <laughs> or do you have a rhythm to your time with him? I think you have to do it every day. I think we all have to do it every day in order to understand who we are and what God wants us to do to meet the needs of others and to set us up to be in a position where he's meeting our needs through others. That's relational rhythm. The Bible is the standard and our story that describes for us how we are to get our needs met, right? Because there are, listen, there are God-approved ways to get your needs met, and then there are God-prohibited ways to get your needs met. Right? This is the problem. And listen to this. All the the God-prohibited ways that we meet our needs end up being destructive to our own soul and very often, almost always, are destructive to others. Unforgiveness, immorality, revenge, anger, bitterness, all these cause us pain ultimately and cause pain in others. God has a way he wants us to interact with each other and there's a rhythm to it. It isn't selfish or obsessive. It isn't smothering or controlling. It isn't angry or hateful. It isn't shallow or short-sighted. It has consistency to it. That's how he, that's how he wired us up. That's how he designed us. It's like rhythm is about the beat, right? The beat. If you don't live on beat, life will beat you up. If you don't live on beat, life will beat you up. How does it beat you up? It beats you up through your busyness. So much busyness. You know what the answer God gave us for that? The Sabbath. Sabbath. Write it right there. I know you don't want to write it in that little space because some of you are starting to fall asleep now because you're so tired because you just didn't take a Sabbath. I'm not talking about an Old Testament practice. I'm not talking about an Old Testament law where you have to do. I'm talking about the practice in your life of taking time out from all the work. Isolation is the second one. The solution, you know what, you know what the problem, you know what the, you know what the solution that God gave us for isolation is? He wants us to be in a small group. He wants us to be in a little group of people. He wants us to be in a group of people that know us, that we're known and we're needed. That we, they know the inner workings of our struggle and they can be there with us. That's what, that's, what, that's what defeats isolation. And that's God's design. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, that's what it says. To be truly fulfilled, we all need to be known and needed. The third one is fear. Fear, so many people are afraid. So, many, so much fear trafficking going on in our culture right now. And do you know what the solution is? It's love. 1 John 4 says that, There is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear, since fear is crippling. A fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment is one not yet fully formed in love. We, though, are going to love, love and be loved. This is what God designed us for. Love from him, love with one another, and we need to reinforce this. Your rhythm only works if you understand it's the rests. Now, go with me here. You only get it if you understand it's the rests that define the music. If there, if, if, if you're, there are no resting points in the music. Music is defined not by the sound, but by the absence of the sound. That's called a rest. So every note is played, but then there's an end to that note 
and it goes to the next note. And very often there are rests that show up within the music that define it. They're the boundaries of the music. If everybody just plays one big note all at the same time, if the band was up here and they were just like, there's no definition to it. It's the rests that define the music. I'm going to ask the team to come up here now and not play that way. But listen, I, I'm, I'm convinced there needs to be a few people, six to eight people that you know. They don't have to be best friends, but they have, they have to know what's going on in your life, and you have to interact with them. That's why small groups are so important, and that's, why, that's what Catalyst really is. It's a process of you learning how to discover that you have needs that God wants to fill, and he wants to do it within a context of that little group of people. Number three, do you understand what God is asking of you? Do you understand what God is asking of you? And I want to say this. Did you know the first question in the Bible? What's the first question in the Bible? It's, did God really say? It was said by the serpent, a talking serpent. Did God really say, Genesis 3, 2, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He was casting doubt, and doubt is the problem. Unbelief is an issue here if you don't believe that God designed you this way, the way we're talking about this morning. If you don't believe you have needs that oth only others can meet, if you don't understand that God has designed you with way, I don't believe this, I can, I can have sex with whoever I want, I can do whatever I want, I can do, I mean, my body, it's strong, it's good, I can do this, I, I, run, I run around town lake, I can do what I want when I want, with whomever I want. It's incredibly destructive, but it comes from the little source of doubt and unbelief. God didn't really say this. This isn't real. And I want you to realize that the, <laughs> the next question was pretty profound. The second question, because Adam and Eve decided to take the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, and take it without any input from God. In, in fact, they, they disobeyed him and they took it for themselves and they took what they decided was we're gonna live life on our terms, not on God's terms. And the second question was in the Bible is where are you? And it was said by God. Genesis 3, 8 through 9 says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. Like, think about that. Adam said, I was afraid. I was afraid so I hid. I think so many of us are hiding because we're afraid. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Adam answered the question not locationally? God says, where are you? You think God didn't know? God wasn't asking about his location. He was saying, where are you in your soul? He was saying, where are you? What is the condition of your soul? And I think there are areas of your life that you and I need to bring to the Lord. I want you just to write them down here. They're right at the end. 
areas that you and I have to bring them and surrender them to Jesus. The first one is your spiritual life. Do you have a few minutes every day that you'll do something to be with God? Do you have a gathering with God's people every week? Emotional needs would be the second one. Do you have someone who will give you a hug and tell you why they love you? <laughs> Physical needs. <laughs> this is my problem. <laughs> this is some of your problems. You eat the wrong things. You, you've put the wrong things in. So it, listen, I understand. But those physical needs are meaningful. And God has a design for you. Relational needs. Do you, are you alone? Do you feel alone? God wants to put you in a group of people that will love you and walk with you. Financial needs. You, there's so many people who don't spend less than they make and it puts pressure on them and they don't know how to do it. Financial needs are real. That's why Financial Peace University is so critical for all of us. Professional needs. You have real professional needs. Do you, do you spend time getting your career moving? That's important. That's a need. Do you sit down with mentors? Do you... Those are all significant issues. So I'm going to ask you to come to the Lord's table here today. And I want you to consider taking each of these areas of your life and you giving them to God and saying, okay, God, I need, these are needs that I need met, and now you direct me. Give me your God-approved ways to meet these needs. Help me to be who you've called me to be. Help me to acknowledge that I am in need and I need you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, to the table that Jesus has set for us by his broken body, represented by the bread, and his blood poured out for our forgiveness, represented by the cup. And Lord, we come to this table because we realize that we are in need. We don't come trying to make our own way. We come with an acknowledgement, with a repentance that we have not. We have not done what we should do in looking to you for our needs. So would you forgive us in this moment? Would you heal us? Would you give in an illustration of this bread going into our bodies, would you nourish us with yourself? And make us into the people you want us to be. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.